Welcome to the Health Disparities Podcast, a program of the Movement is Life Caucus, where we have conversations about health disparities with people who are working to eliminate them. I'm Eileen Bodie. I've been a member of the caucus for 10 years, and I'm delighted to be hosting today's conversation with Dr. Melvin Harrington. Dr. Harrington is a professor of orthopedic surgery and residency program director at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, and a longtime collaborator on equity, diversity, and inclusion aspects of medicine as in the Movement of Life Caucus. Good morning, Dr. Harrington. Good morning. Diversity and inclusion have been very, very important issues for you. Can you tell me what you're doing with them at Baylor College of Medicine? Um, well, in Baylor, in my role as a residency program director, I'm working to try to get as diverse a group of residents uh, going into orthopedic surgery as possible. Um, I also, through working with our Office of Diversity and Inclusion, uh, work on improving diversity across the board uh, throughout the entire institution. Why is diversity in medicine an important issue? Well, I think it's been well documented and shown that um, patients uh, respond best and have better outcomes with concordant uh, physician uh, race and gender. And um, our medical population at the present time does not reflect our population in terms of diversity and uh, gender equity. What, what are the statistics of that? I mean, what, what is the differential? Um, well, I know in orthopedics, we uh, are number one in terms of being the least diverse medical specialty. Um, it's one of our big uh, issues, whereas 50% of the uh, medical school classes are currently uh, women. Uh, in orthopedics, our residency programs, we only have uh, around 13 to 14% of uh, women residents, and this has been unchanged for many, many years. Um, for underrepresented minorities, the data is much lower, where we are only about uh, four to five percent uh, in our residents. Four to five percent—that's pretty low. Why, why is that? Why, why are they, the percentages so low? Um, it's a good question. Uh, we've been working on it for quite some time. I think there may be two different issues in terms of the issues for women, particularly going into orthopedics, versus underrepresented minorities. Um, for women, there are plenty of women to choose from uh, to go into orthopedics in the med school class. Um, we have to figure out why are they choosing to go into other specialties rather than orthopedic surgery. Uh, for underrepresented minorities, there's much more of a pipeline issue where there are just not enough underrepresented minority students in the medical school class to choose from. And then, you know, that small number is being divided up among all of the various medical specialties. Does that filter back to college in terms of the number of minorities going on from college to medical school? I think it probably goes all the way back to middle school. <laughs> oh, can you explain that? I, that's an interesting um, concept. Um, you know, there's data to show that I think third grade is where they say is for a lot of uh, minority students uh, the determination of where where they go in terms of uh, completing school and ultimate achievement and trying to get students through middle school and high school and then getting them through high school out of high school and into college is is the challenge and 
you know, the numbers, the pipeline just keeps getting smaller and smaller for underrepresented minorities. And so, you know, we take the students who make it out of high school and go to college, and then they get divided up into the various majors and areas and the small number that end up in medicine and then the even smaller number that end up looking at various subspecialties. What is needed to bring diversity to orthopedics? Um, I think we need to, uh, for women, again, figure out what we can do as a specialty to make it more friendly, uh, to get women to consider it. Uh, there's a lot of traditional biases uh, that it, because it is a such a male-dominated uh, specialty, and uh, to show that you know women can do it, and it's a great opportunity and a great specialty uh, for everyone. Um, and I think for underrepresented minorities, um, it's getting more you know dealing with the pipeline issues and getting more underrepresented minorities into medical school, and then exposing them early to these subspecialties such as orthopedics and other competitive specialties uh, to go in. You know, there's a big push for underrepresented minorities to go into primary care where they are certainly needed, but we also need them in academic orthopedic surgery, which I do. This is a very interesting idea. You said biases. What kind of biases are there for women? Um, well, you know, they, a lot of these stem uh, from way back in, in all of the surgical specialties, and a lot of it is lifestyle. You know, residency is right when most folks are, you know, making lifestyle life changes and getting married, having children, and things like that, and it can be challenging. Uh, the work hours are long. Um, the perception is that the surgical fields are longer and harder than some of the non-surgical fields. Now, you, know, you can debate that, whether that's uh, totally true or not. Um, and in orthopedic surgery, there's the myth that you have to be big and strong. Uh, there are a lot of former athletes in orthopedics, and um, you know, there's uh, definitely biases saying that, oh, women aren't strong enough to reduce fractures and, and, and actually do the work, but that's really false. Can you give me some examples of organizations bringing diversity into medicine? Mm -hmm. um, one of the uh, great organizations uh, that I actually have been working with uh, since its inception within orthopedics is Nth Dimensions. Uh, it's a program designed to get uh, women and underrepresented minorities who are already in medical school early exposure to orthopedics and to really help them learn learn how to play the game and get a get them into orthopedic surgery to be competitive applicants for residency. Nth dimensions. What what exactly did they do? I mean, how do they? bring diversity into orthopedics? So the, the main uh, project that we work on is our orthopedic summer internship, where we have students apply for a summer internship after between their first and second year of medical school, and we ship them somewhere across the country to work with a mentor uh, for a couple of months. And during that time, they get a clinical exposure to orthopedics, whether it's in the clinic or in the operating room. And they also uh, do a research project uh, that then is presented uh, each year as a poster at the National Medical Association meeting. Does placing them with a mentor, does that prove to be successful? 
Uh, so far, it has been quite successful. The match rate uh, for nth dimension students in recent years has been nearly 90% uh, who have applied for orthopedics have gone into it. Now, of course, not all of the students who we pick after their first year decide to ultimately go into orthopedic surgery, but uh, they end up uh, benefiting from the process and do well in other fields also. That's good to hear. I know that one thing you're really concerned about is uh, changing perhaps this this concept of step one with the National Board of Medical Examiners exam. Can you explain okay. why you're concerned about that? Yeah, so there was a recent change. Um, I believe it's on February 12th. Um, the National Board of Medical Examiners uh, decided to change the scoring uh, reports for the uh, step one board exam from a Three, it was a three-digit numerical score to a strictly pass-fail uh, scoring system. And um, just as a bit of background, um, the National Board of Medical Examiners has a three-part test uh, for medical licensing. And basically, the goal of the exam is to determine if the examinee has achieved the basic medical knowledge to be a physician, to be a licensed physician, and it is what's used by state license boards to grant a license. So in theory, it should be a pass-fail test that do you know enough medicine to get a license, be a licensed physician. Um, however, with the three-digit score um, over the years, that became something that has been used as a stratification tool uh, for resident selection. Uh, the step one exam is taken typically traditionally after the second year of medical school. And so we as program program directors and or residency programs uh, have used that as a indicator and uh, screening tool for uh, selecting resident applicants, uh, even though it was not originally designed for that. And so we use that similar to SAT scores, MCAT scores, and other standardized tests. Why does that create a problem for minority residents? Well, one of the concerns with the uh, uh, three with the numerical score is that number one, the test was not designed to really stratify medical knowledge, um, and so it's not uh, been validated for that purpose. Um, we used it because it is one universal. Uh, measure that we can use to compare students uh, across the board from different uh, medical schools. Um, the challenge has been that over the years, uh, students are applying to more and more and more residencies, and it has become extremely competitive, and students are really focused only on step one exam. They're neglecting the other general med school education and um, one of the big concerns was resident wellness and the stressing out over a single high-stakes exam. And also, uh, students were basing their career choices uh, based on that exam. If they didn't do extremely well on the exam, uh, then they're not felt to be a candidate for some of the more competitive specialties. I can see where that would be a major issue for minority students. Yeah. And it's been a challenge with uh, minority students traditionally having slightly lower scores uh, on the exam and not getting looked at for more competitive uh, applicant, more competitive residency programs. 
so one of the theoretical uh, benefits of a pass-fail system is that we don't have to worry about that and students will get reviewed where they may not have otherwise gotten reviewed. Um, and so I think that's a potential benefit. Uh, it would encourage those of us who are reviewing applications to do a more holistic uh, review, which is what is being pushed by the AAMC and other organizations to try to improve diversity and get a broader range of uh, candidates. And so I think in theory that is a great option. Um, putting on my program director's hat, it's it makes things more difficult because uh, for example, we have six spaces in our orthopedic residency program. We get over 800 applications uh, for that spot. There are around 960 applicants going into orthopedic surgery. So almost all of the applicants apply to over 90 programs on average. And so the challenge is trying to weed that 800 down to a reasonable number to invite to interview to make our selections. And um, while holistic interviewing is wonderful, uh, that's a difficult thing to do for you know, 900 applications. And so that's where the board scores became the stratification tool. So, you know, we residency directors at lots of programs would pick a number, and it was usually a very high number um, as a cutoff. And if you were above the cutoff, then you were potent, your application would get reviewed. But if you were below the cutoff, regardless of whatever the rest of your application looked like, um, you may not have a chance at matching in your desired specialty because your application may not get looked at. Do you think it would be important for medical schools and with a residency to make it a, I wouldn't say a law, but a policy that one of the residents is African-American or a minority and that one of the residents of the six is a woman? Is, is that realistic? Um, I don't think people would go for having mandatory quotas. You know, um, everybody you know, always says, we want the best applicants, and from wherever they're from and whatever that is. You know, the challenge is that uh, the best quality applicants um, has been conflated with board scores, which has been repeatedly disproven. You know, really, I think the main data that the step one numerical scores have shown is that you're a good test taker if you get a good score. There's, you know, some data that links a marginal score to being able to pass your orthopedic surgery boards, but that's really about it. It doesn't reflect on what type of a resident or what type of a physician you're going to be. I was just <laughs> going to bring that up. Just because you have great board scores doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be a humanitarian or, or, or empathetic <laughs> Surgeon. Oh, yeah. A lot of us program directors, you know, joke that in addition to having a minimum boards cutoff, we probably should also have a maximum. <laughs> well, I think that um, there has to be a certain amount of judgment that yeah. goes into bringing the six residents yeah. on because to have 900 applicants and only being able to accept six, what are your criteria other than board scores for including them in your residency program? Um, we look, at, of course, at the grades that they achieve in medical school. Uh, we look at the dean's letter. Each of the uh, med, each of the med, uh, med students gets a letter from the dean that assesses their overall performance in medical school, and that sort of stratifies where they rank, fall in the class. 
Um, we look at their letters of recommendation that they get from people they have worked with, uh, usually physicians in that specialty. Um, and then we look at research and other extracurricular activities. We look for evidence of leadership, volunteerism, and things like that. And so, you know, every program is different in terms of what they look at. Uh, some may emphasize research more than others. Uh, there are some that emphasize board scores. And they want you in the 99-plus percentile, and that's who they look at. Um, so, you know, everything is variable from program to program, and I think probably even from reviewer to reviewer. Have you ever been in the situation where you thought this resident would be an absolutely wonderful surgeon, but he or she did not have the board scores to make the cut? Yes, we've had that. Um, there, there are plenty of uh, physicians out there who may not have done so well on the boards and may not have matched the first time they applied and ultimately get in and become outstanding uh, physicians. So we know that that doesn't uh, necessarily, the board scores are, you know, they're one piece of the pie and one piece of the assessment uh, process. Um, I think the majority of us used cutoffs just to limit our numbers and limit our time <laughs> in reviewing. It's, that makes sense. Yeah. Do you think that um, increasing diversity in the orthopedic industry would help reduce healthcare disparities? Um, I think so. Um, you know, the studies again show that um, you know underrepresented uh, minority physicians are more likely to practice in under neighbor, neighborhoods and areas that have more uh, minorities. Um, and so it's an access to care issue. And I think in terms of um, quality of care and outcomes um, and patients feeling comfortable with their uh, physicians, uh, you know, and having physicians who can practice more culturally competent uh, care is critical. Considering the future of bundled payments, and considering the limitations on healthcare insurance, mm -hmm. there are um, a lot of orthopedic surgeons that are not accepting Medi-Cal, Medicaid, or even Medicare. Do you think having a more diverse orthopedic surgeon um, industry would improve uh, access to care for a lot of uh, people who, who have limited insurance mm -hmm. options? That's a tough one um, because having more minority surgeons certainly may improve access, but you know the the challenge also become comes down to sort of a business proposition. Uh, these days, very few orthopedic surgeons are very are going out into solo practice and um, you know more joining hospital systems and are becoming employees. And so a lot of those decisions are not necessarily made at the individual practitioner level anymore. Uh, it's sort of, I work for this hospital system and these are the insurances that we take. Um, you know, so that's challenge. And then also on the private side, it's a business decision to be able to, you know, have appropriate uh, reimbursement just to be able to keep your doors open. And so that those are all the challenges, particularly when it comes to to payments um, and uh, payment systems, whether it's Medicare, Medicaid, or private insurance. Um, I think one of the other issues with some of the bundled care that can impact um, the 
potentially impact health or worsen health disparities is the uh, the potential penalties for complications and bundled care. And so, you know, if you're practicing at a county hospital or with a underserved population, uh, you're expected uh, to have the same outcomes as someone practicing with an all, you know, well-insured uh, group that don't have all of the other social issues that can affect your outcomes. Safety net hospitals um, are disappearing yeah. in the United States uh, due to uh, low reimbursements, and that is impacting the um, the minority uh, people, both in the African American community and in the Latino community. What can the orthopedic industry do to perhaps salvage these safety net hospitals? Is there anything that can be done? <laughs> From an orthopedic side, that's that's a challenge. Um, you know, I, uh, our department uh, covers our county hospital, and uh, one of the challenges that we've had in the past is. Um, you know, there's a great need for orthopedic procedures done in our county under uninsured, underinsured population. And, um, but depending upon the county's budget, they are not always interested in doing the more elective surgeries. You know, they're, they're barely able to cover the life-threatening emergency procedures. And so when we have a patient who may just need a knee arthroscopy or, you know, a carpal tunnel release, something that's critical and may be necessary to keep that person able to work, um, you know, or, you know, just to be a functional in society. Um, it's definitely a needed operation, but it's selective. And, you know, whether or not they have funding to be able to do enough of those procedures has, has been a challenge for some of my colleagues. What's wrong with our healthcare system right now? I know that's a really <laughs> big question. It's a political question, depending on your uh, point of view. I think um, you know the push for universal healthcare. I think it would be wonderful if everyone had some basic healthcare. Now, getting into the details of what's covered, what's not covered, and who pays for what—that that becomes the the big challenge. And you know, when you factor in all of the different interests, whether it's from the medical health care side or the insurance side or, you know, anything else, that, that's where the, the, the devil's in the details and the, the difficulties uh, come in. Do you think by increasing um, minority surgeons and, and minority health care professionals, well, that will help improve some of the issues in the health care system? I think if nothing else, it would help give us a stronger voice to advocate for our minority and underserved patients. Thank you very much for your comments today. We really appreciate your time. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners for joining us for this episode of the Health Disparities Podcast. We hope you found it interesting. Please remember to subscribe on iTunes or you can sign up on our website to receive notifications of future episodes. I'm Eileen Bodie, and on the behalf of Moving This Life Caucus, I thank you for your time. <music>